Let's face it, whether you're hiring or trying to find work today, the process has become tougher than ever. Between ghost listings, AI-powered applicant tracking systems, chat GPT-written resumes and cover letters, and wild employment scams, how do you know if your resume, your application, or your job posting is even being seen by an actual human? That's why we've relaunched our job board to try to help you find your next opportunity. And if you're a company that's hiring right now, we'll feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and we'll help spread the word about it to our audience of podcast listeners for just $99. Get started with us and expand your job search or your recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising Programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design Program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design, and the BFA Advertising Program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sba.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. So there's a big change that's coming for Revision Path. You know, since we launched in 2013, we've made it thanks to a number of different things. Um, Job board revenue, merch sales, ticket sales for events, uh, corporate sponsorships, of course, listener donations, and um, also my salary, <laughs> just based on wherever I happened to be working at the time. Um, of course, the world now is a different place from when we started this show 10 years ago. Um, companies are different. Uh, attitudes on anything DEI related are different. Um, the economy is wild right now. Inflation is raising the price on everything. And as some of you know, and I've mentioned it on the show, you know, I've been laid off now for over a year. And my salary has kind of been up and down since the pandemic began back in 2020, but now it's it's non-existent. Um, and so what this means for Revision Path? Well, for now, uh, the plan is to continue making the podcast, uh, of course, but unless we can find a strategic partner or a sponsor or, you know, get more donations, we may have to sunset the show by the end of the year. Uh, hopefully that's not the case. Uh, But it is the reality that we are currently facing in this crazy world that we're in right now. So, you know, I say on every episode, if you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. 
please, 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 whether that's through donating, whether it's sponsoring, um, please give what you can. It really helps out. It goes 100%, not just back into the show, but also into all of the infrastructure to keep the show going, to keep me going. It would really help out a lot. So I just wanted to put that out there. I haven't been vocal about it, really. Of course, I have been just doing, you know, donation calls throughout the year. But that's the reality of where we're at right now. And so just want to let you all know that. So hopefully if you can help out again, we would really appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for your support. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Manny Icomi. Manny is a design educator, a podcaster and a Twitch streamer. He's also a UX designer at IBM IX in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Manny Icomi. I am a UX designer at IBM currently. And also recently, I am adjunct faculty teaching an interactive design course at Bunker Hill Community College. Nice. How's your year been going so far? So far, uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. I think there's definitely been some really good ups and some really low downs. But at the end of the day, I think like the net ending of that is still like growing and succeeding in the things that I want to do so far. And, you know, there's still more to come, I guess. So still with a lot of optimism, it's been going well. How would you say you've like grown and improved over the past year? Have you noticed anything in particular? So I started at IBM um, in June of last year, 2022. Mm-hmm. That first year was like a little trial by fire because of the project that I was working on. But I also had access to a lot of really great mentors, people in my network, both inside and outside of the company. And so professionally, I think like there was just such an immense growth in like that stretch zone that I like to call it within my first year. And so now that I'm like a little bit over a year in as of June of this year, I've kind of like leveled out. The honeymoon phase is a bit over and I'm kind of just like doing the thing now. Things that I thought maybe I wasn't capable of like a year ago, I guess I'm capable of now. Teaching being one of them, I think probably most recent, you know, a little bit of recency bias, but, you know, teaching has been something that has been on my mind to do for a little while ever since a professor of mine kind of planted the seeds like when I graduated from the college that I'm teaching at now, which is another story. But it's been a really great experience so far, like teaching. I'm only like four weeks into my class. It's my first time teaching ever. And for the most part, it's also been going really well on top of just working at IBM and doing other things. And interestingly enough, there's also a lot of overlap between some of the work that I'm doing now and some of the things I'm doing for my course. This year has been definitely a year of growth and stretching and learning and teaching. So sometimes teaching also is a really great way to learn. So it's been really great. Nice. Let's talk about your work at IBM, specifically IBM IX, where you work, like you said, as a UX designer. Tell me more about that. So yeah, IBM IX. So IBM, for those of you who maybe don't know, because they're not as recognized, I guess, of a brand anymore, especially for younger folks, it stands for International Business Machines. It's a very old company. There's lots of history. They hold a lot of patents for things, interestingly, that I learned about. Most notably, I think like the magnetic stripe on credit cards is something that I never realized that they had essentially invented. And so they've been a very large technology company for a very long time. 
And over the years, I think they evolved from more like hardware and stuff. And then now they do mostly software and consulting. So they have their own cloud offerings. And then I'm in the consulting part of the business. And then IX, which stands for Interactive Experience, is a smaller bubble within IBM Consulting. And what I do there as a UX designer, I guess, like all of us will say, it depends It depends on the project. It depends on the clients because ultimately I'm considered a consultant as opposed to like an in-house designer. So I don't necessarily work on IBM's cloud services and software and products. I actually work on clients of IBM who come to the company and say, hey, we need UX designers for this or we need design services for some sort of initiative. And through that, I've really gotten to do a whole bunch of stuff particularly within my first year, I could be doing anything from contextual inquiry and design research, traveling to clients on site, doing observational research, typical like user interface prototyping, working in Figma, doing demos and things like that, usability testing, enterprise design thinking, which is kind of like their methodology around design thinking and how we deliver design services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've pretty much done, I think, the whole gamut of user experience design and and really just design in general. I really expanded my view, I think kind of going back to the other question about how I've grown, like my view of of what design is and and how it works and what I do has definitely been a lot more expansive beyond just like the tangible like artifacts and things that we make. Well, it sounds like your day-to-day work is is pretty varied then. Like you said, you're either researching, you're doing site visits, et, et cetera, like it sounds like there's a, a lot of variety in the work that you're able to do. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. And, you know, some of that is for better or for worse, I guess, because it turns you into a little bit of a generalist, which some people have opinions about. But I think at least at this point in my career, because it's a little bit more earlier on, it's good for me to have that kind of exposure and, and, op- and growth opportunities to try and do different things, mm-hmm. especially when the risk is low for me personally, right? Yeah, I mean, I get to work on a whole bunch of stuff. Most recently, the project that I've been working on is a little bit more on the strategic end and getting a local state government to actually adopt some of IBM's design thinking methodology, mm-hmm. which really kind of lines up to what I was talking about earlier about teaching people about design now as like a adjunct faculty instructor. So there's also been some really interesting overlap and in, in ways in which I'm now delivering design that I never really considered possible up until recently. Mm-hmm. So that's been interesting, but... Yeah, it's, it's been a really great growth and learning experience so far. I kind of want to talk a little bit about that generalist part that you just mentioned there. I know there's this book by David Epstein called Range. I don't know if you've heard about it. You know what? It sounds familiar now that you say that. Yeah, I think I might have saved a sample to my Kindle at one point and then never, <laughs> never ended up buying it. But it's called Range, Why uh, Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And like it does sort of make the case for why generalists are, they're really sort of sought after in a way. I'm curious, though, because you do so much, like, are you finding there's a particular part of UX that you prefer over others? (sighs) Yeah, that's something I've been kind of thinking about a little bit lately. And I guess due to the fact of my generalist nature, it kind of goes beyond just design and also into web development, too. And so this area that I've been kind of occupying, at least not necessarily within IBM, but just in general as like I upskill and just learn different things. I'm also like a self-taught front-end web developer. And so 
I've been thinking a lot about the intersections of like experience design and web development and like the opportunities there for people who have that kind of hybrid skill set and can really, I guess, specialize in there, despite considering myself a generalist in some ways, I specialize in others. So the areas that I think I, I'm really liking the most is is research. There are things that I've learned about design research and psychology and humans and their behaviors just from watching them interact with designs that I've made or others that I just find so fascinating that just kind of leads itself to my own just like innate sense of curiosity and wanting to learn. Mm-hmm. But then there's also, interestingly enough, like the complete flip side of that, which is like the more logistical, I guess, X and Ys, ones and zeros, codes and things like actually developing and building the things that I design in some tool and actually making it a real thing. Because that's kind of where I started and that's how I really transitioned into the work that I do now is I started as a graphic designer and then... I became interested in web design and then I would create these these web designs, but I couldn't actually put it on the internet and have it be a website. Mm. And all kind of roads, basically, no matter how hard I tried to avoid coding, were just like, basically, if you want to do it, you got to do it yourself. Yeah. So I learned coding through that. And then now it's just kind of been a skill that's really stuck with me, I guess, along the way. It's not a skill that I get to or a muscle that I get to flex all the time. But it does surface in some other interesting ways, especially when it comes to collaborating with other developers and just thinking a little bit more logically about the designs that I'm creating and like their ability to be feasibly implemented. So I would say between the design engineering part, so that kind of hybrid of making a design and actually being able to build it, but also some of the user research aspects of it and strategy, which I guess is kind of everything, but also specific <laughs> to at the same time. Well, I think it's it's good to have that sort of generalist, I think, sort of mindset as well as skill set. I mean, back in the day when the web was really just first starting to become something, everyone sort of had to become a generalist in some way. Like you designed it, you had to code it, you had to slice it up, et cetera, and put it on the web. Of course, now it's so interesting with companies because it seems like companies want specialists. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you look at their job descriptions, what they really want is a generalist that has a specialization. So they kind of yeah. want that, what the they call it, T-shape. Yeah, like the mm-hmm. T-shape designer or whatever, where you've got this broad set of skills. Like, I saw something for this company wanted, like, a social media manager, but then mm-hmm. they also needed to be a graphic designer, and they also needed to know motion design. And I was like, those are entirely different things. <laughs> what you want is a designer. It sounds right. like you want a, a designer that has like social media social experience, media but they're like, no, we want a social media manager, but then you want this person right. doing motion design. Like, I don't know if that's also just a, <laughs> a byproduct of how messed up the job market is right now, but I've seen a lot of that. It definitely. You is know, I've seen a lot. Of what are some of the projects that you've worked on that you can talk about? For a lot of reasons, obviously I can't talk about a lot of details. Probably the level to what I can say is the first project that I worked on while I was at IBM was basically in the realm of safety. And so the idea was that people who were working in a manufacturing facility could record and take pictures of safety violations or safety issues that they might find Mm -hmm. and then be able to report that through a system that we developed. So the application of actually reporting and observing safety issues and then like a whole process and chain of people involved, essentially like a service design around like people on the front end actually recording issues and then all the way in the back end actually like analyzing issues and and doing like some predictive analytics and things like that. 
And then the most recent project that I'm on right now with a local state government is basically helping them adopt human-centered design thinking processes and methods and frameworks. And the way that IBM does that is through their enterprise design thinking framework, which I've come to really like and appreciate. It was one of those things that I, I wish I had known about as a student to and definitely kind of opened my world to the possibilities of like what design can be and, and how it can manifest itself, I think. Mm-hmm. And then ever since then, it's kind of just become this thing where I'm like, wow, it's more than just the artifacts that we make. It's also the way that we think and how we convey our ideas to others, how people interpret our ideas. And it's really just kind of expanded my view, I guess, of, of what it is. But yeah, those are probably like the probably the highest level I can get with those two specific projects. The first one I was on for like a little, just under a year. And that was like pretty much the majority of my like entry level experience getting hired into IBM as like an entry level professional hire. And that first project was really great. I had a great team that I worked with. I got to travel a little bit as part of it. And it was a really great experience. There were parts of it that were challenging, definitely as with any project or design engagement. But ultimately, I'm really thankful for that first project and the people that I get to, that I got to work with. And I'm hoping to reach out to them again the end of this year to just kind of check in and see like where the work has gone since I've left the project. And then this more recent project that I was talking about in terms of design adoption, that one just recently kicked off like a few weeks ago. So we're still in the early stages, but the team is also like looking really great to work with. And and so far it's been great. So the work has just been very like varied and and interesting and every time, you know, I just feel like I'm learning something new or learning something different about design than I thought was ever possible, like maybe like two or three years ago. So it's just fascinating. Now you talked, you know, just a little bit there about one of the projects having predictive analytics, which of course makes me think about sort of this current era that we're in of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And there's a number of different sort of cutting edge technologies now that have clearly bled into the mainstream that I think have been going on for a while, like AR, VR, et cetera. But now mm-hmm. they're becoming, you know, mainstream sort of things. How do you see UX evolving with these new technologies? I haven't put too much thought into this. I think, you know, obviously the glaring kind of like observation here is with generative AI, right? And like ChatGPT and OpenAI and all this stuff that's come out recently. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately, like, at least in the specific realm of generative AI, it kind of offers an opportunity to actually augment the work that we do as designers. And in some places, I guess, yeah, it will replace some jobs. But I think ultimately, it will also kind of augment the way that we do work. And And there are, there are products now that are out that kind of help like user researchers like find patterns in their like interviews and the transcripts using AI and like things like that that are just really interesting. So there are areas where AI is kind of like enhancing the work that we do and allows us to kind of augment the work and be more productive. Things like AR and VR, I actually haven't had too many experiences with, not really even in college. However, the Apple Vision Pro device that was announced by Apple like earlier this year, I thought that was really interesting and had like a bit of a a rabbit hole of thoughts around that in terms of experience design and how for the longest time, a lot of our designs for user interfaces have kind of been, at least for digital user interfaces, have been kind of confined to these rectangles that are you're probably looking at right now in these screens. 
And so with AR and VR experiences and mixed reality, like with products like the Apple Vision Pro, it's kind of like it allows us to step outside of those bounds, really, of that rectangle screen that we're so used to designing for. Mm-hmm. And, and it really opens up a lot more possibilities for a lot more intuitive and natural interfaces for us that maybe we just have not developed even like usability patterns for yet or rules of thumb for. And so I find that like a very interesting area that's kind of opening up. I imagine there are much more qualified people than me to talk about that, but it is something that I've been thinking about, especially since technology is, it's kind of hard to stop progress in that sense. And so as experienced designers, I guess we're also kind of well positioned in the sense that almost everything is an experience and almost everything is designed. And so in one shape or another, I think we'll end up having a hand in it and potentially not only just consuming the technology, but also producing ways for people to interact with it too. I mean, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the way that the technology is is rapidly advancing. I mean, I feel like this time last year, companies were just starting to kind of test the waters a little bit to see what they could do. And now I think within that past year, every major tech company has made some sort of announcement about how they're using AI or they're using, you know, like a chat GPT or some sort of generative type of, you know, new technology in the work that they're doing, almost kind of shoehorning it in, in some cases. Like, of course, now, you know, I mean, let's just talk about the obvious Google search. I mean, Google search now will bring up AI stuff right along with these SEO optimized results that will come up in your regular search engine results page. And it's like, it's a little difficult, I think, sometimes to be able to discern what is good with that and what's bad with that. Like, I think everyone's trying to sort of race to find how they can use this technology, how they can make it work without really stopping to think, is it necessary? Do we have to do this? Is it just a competition thing? Like, business competition maybe it is maybe it isn't i mean i feel like you know after a while we'll start seeing appliances that have ai like smart i mean we already have stuff like that, like smart fridges and smart <laughs> toasters and stuff but like yeah. i don't need my toaster to have chat gpt or whatever just just toast the bread <laughs> i mean that's a, that's an extreme yeah. case but you know what i mean i totally get what you mean i think that's where like i i have like the negative sort of perspective on ai particularly is like or really with any sort of emerging technology, it's like, especially for these really larger tech companies like IBM included, it's kind of like the rat race to figure out who's going to be able to monetize it and make the most revenue with the technology and kind of have their moat, so to speak. In that case, you know, that's where we end up with like, oh, let's just slap AI on everything and then see what happens without really, you know, to your point, stopping to think about the impact, you know, whether it's positive or negative to the people that AI is being deployed on. You know, it does have, in the same way that it can be a really immense help and benefit to society in some case, like, it can also be very dangerous. And I don't think companies are really incentivized right now to really think about it in that more ethical or like social impact lens, because that's just not going to make the money. And that's the way the world turns essentially right now. So. There's this startup, I'll say it now, I, I was thinking about if I should even mention this, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. There's a startup based out of Seattle that does like AI text-to-speech, essentially. Mm-hmm. They cloned one of the host voice of Planet Money at, for NPR and did like a whole episode with this person's voice. And it sounds pretty realistic. I mean, you know, I think there are still going to be certain eccentricities in the human voice that 
humans will be able to discern. But of course, the models are getting better for it and things like that. But mm-hmm. they're one of the few companies, uh, the company is called Well Said Labs. They're one of the few companies I've seen that actually has like a code of ethics behind mm-hmm. the work that they do because it could be so easy for someone to use their service that they offer use that technology for like extremely nefarious purposes like right but they actually have a code of ethics behind about what customers do with that technology and how they even plan on implementing and using it which i would like to see more companies if they're going to be implementing these features i would like to also have them talk about like we said before those ramifications of what it means to include all of this and who is it really serving and this is something that we saw with like Bitcoin and with Web3 and all this sort of stuff where the use of all this generative AI also uses a lot of natural resources, which is something that Mm -hmm. I don't think we regularly would think about because computers have been such an ever-present, just an ever-present sort of thing. But I remember I was reading something, I want to say, I don't know, a couple of days ago about how Microsoft's water usage or something has increased by 30% because of the fact that they're like using AI within, oh wait, I'm looking at it now. AI usage fuels spike in Microsoft's water consumption. It spiked mm-hmm. 34% because they're using it in all these other types of programs and stuff, which you would think, water? Why water? But it takes more servers, space, and power to do all this AI stuff, which means it has to be cooled cool. in some way with mm-hmm. air conditioning. Like it, it's all tied in so like it's not really happening in a vacuum i would just like to see more companies talk about the ethics behind why they're doing what they're doing instead of just rolling out innovation after innovation that i guess we're supposed to ooh and ah over in some fancy presentation (laughs) yeah my perspective is obviously kind of biased because i work for ibm but Mm -hmm. like recently with the whole watson x announcement thing that you may or may not have heard of i think part of it and and ibm does i think have pretty decent programming and ethics and training around the use of AI, because that's kind of like one of our strategic like areas that we're trying to be leaders in. Mm -hmm. And so the whole rollout for Watson X was kind of centered around like three different areas. There was Watson X dot AI dot data and then dot governance. And governance, I think, is really that part of it that kind of talks about, you know, making sure that it's responsible and transparent and like explainable. And then we also have even like an enterprise design thinking course where the methodology for design thinking is tailored around like if you want to implement AI and you're using a design thinking framework or initiative to do that, there's also training like that's kind of specific to that as well. Mm-hmm. That kind of goes into some of the like, what is the like ideal outcome or impact that we want to have? And is AI really even necessary for that in the first place? Right. So it kind of, it wants you to to think about those things. Now, in my personal experience, have I like, you know, deployed AI in some way with IBM? Not really. So I haven't actually gotten the chance to use these learning materials. But I think at the very least, like, they're there as a resource for us employees to use. And it is in IBM's interest for us to be very smart about the usage of AI, because in some ways we are kind of seen as like leaders or innovators in that space. There is definitely an an aspect of like companies need to have more like ethics and intent around like how they're using AI, where it gets deployed, what the impact is, who's using it, who's being affected by it. I think I would like to see more from that from every company, IBM included. But from what I've seen so far, I think at least at a programming and learning level, IBM seems to be very aware of that. 
And it's also from a risk and compliance perspective, because we're mostly operate as a like B2B or enterprise to enterprise business, privacy, security, and compliance are things that like really large businesses that IBM really care about because it kind of is what amounts to their risk, you know, and being litigated against, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we deploy AI for a client that uses IBM's technology, we do have to have like a certain amount of ownership over what the technology does and who it impacts because we're like the designers and deployers of those things. Yeah, we all have to, I just think, be a bit more cognizant of the usage of these tools and what they mean and what the greater sort of impact of it is. But Mm -hmm. I think we've nerded out enough about that. So let's (laughs) let's kind of shift the focus here and talk more about you. Let's learn more about Manny. Tell me about uh, where you're from. I'm mostly from the Boston area. I grew up mostly in towns called Saugus and Malden and a little bit in Revere. And that's kind of like known as like the North Shore area of Boston, I guess you could say. But I've pretty much lived like within 20 to 15 minutes outside of Boston for my entire life. And I've worked around the same area pretty much my entire life. I went to school (laughs) around the area Mm -hmm. pretty much throughout my entire life, too. Now, growing up, were you always kind of interested in like technology? Was it something that your parents kind of tried to get you into? I would say I've always been interested in it. I think uh, what led me to becoming a designer and my interest in it was that that combination of being able to merge like my creative interests and creative outputs and curiosity with like more technical um, implementations and like things like that. I remember in high school, like I went to a vocational high school for context. So we had kind of like vocational programs as part of the regular high school programming. Okay. And so that's kind of where I got my first taste of like, I can be creative and make something and have it be like a physical, tangible thing. And I just thought that was so cool because one, I was really bad at drawing, even though I was trying to be creative. But I did find that I had an affinity for things like the software and tooling that was available in the computer labs that we have. The shop was called Graphic Communications, by the way. So that's kind of what led into my whole six years at a printing company and things like that. Mm -hmm. But that's really where I started to develop that interest for like the combination of creativity and technology. Although at the time, the technology was was printing, not as we would think about it, I guess, today from a UX standpoint. Mm. Let's talk more about Bunker Hill. Of course, you mentioned earlier that you are a teacher there, which we'll get into, but that's where you started off in college. You went to Bunker Hill Community College, majored in graphic arts and visual communications. Tell me, like, what was your time like there? Do you feel like it really kind of prepared you? Bunker Hill was kind of interesting because I was kind of facing some, I guess, like conflicting realities that that was actually like a very huge period of growth for me, I think, relatively to like where I'm at now, if I like really reflect on it. So with Bunker Hill, I think like the programming that they had there at the time was pretty good. I think from a design perspective, it was definitely skewed more towards those kind of like typical like graphic design programs where like your first year is kind of like your foundation year, you're required to do like a whole bunch of like drawing and and painting and like kind of like more artsy stuff Mm -hmm. and then in your like i guess second year of the associates program that's where you start getting into more specific like studio level courses around like typography which is where i think like my trajectory and design kind of started to skyrocket when i finally like recognized 
the importance of it and my ability to like influence that as a designer now. That's always the one thing I tell people if they learn nothing about design is typography is like 90 or 80% of the stuff that you need to know if you want to become a designer Mm -hmm. or at least design something well if you're not formally trained as one. From there, I spent quite a few years there because I was a part-time student and then I was working full-time at the print shop. And that was mostly because I couldn't afford to go to a full like four-year institution I didn't really feel comfortable with the idea of like taking out a whole bunch of student loans. And although like I had like pretty decent support from like my parents, it wasn't something that I also felt like, I guess I didn't want them to be fiscally responsible. I don't really think we were in a position to do that, Mm -hmm. especially at the time that I was doing community college classes. So it was really just kind of me like finding my way, figuring it out. When I first started there, I tried to take 12 credits worth of courses and work full-time at the print shop, which lasted maybe all of like four to six weeks before I was, this is definitely not going to work because that was just a lot. And then finally, I found like a good balance between two classes a semester, which ultimately ended up requiring me to go twice as long to finish my associate's degree. So it actually took me four years as opposed to two. But for the most part, I was able to go through community college without any loans whatsoever, which was extremely helpful to me now. I'm thanking myself much later in the future (laughs) for for being smart enough to think about that. You know, during that time, because I had to be so, I guess, independent in that sense and really think about myself and my needs and ultimately my own personal finances, that's kind of where I started to really think about like my personal finance, money, what success meant to me becoming more financially literate in the decisions that I was making and the impact that it might have on me later, you know, learning about debt and compound interest and investing and all those things. And luckily, I made a lot of really smart choices during that time to the point where now, like financially, I'm doing things less so out of fear, which was kind of like the original motivation for me to do that because I didn't want to be broke. And I had some minorly traumatic experiences around involving money and things like that when I was growing up. So it kind of started from that place of fear. And then now that I'm finally in a place where like, I feel like much more well-established, much more secure, not only in my, my professional life, but also my personal life and just who I am, those things are, are more so, they're not top of mind for me and I don't have to obsess about them, mm-hmm. but I have enough of like a foundation to, to think about it more as an opportunity rather than a risk, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, college is a transitory time for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And for you, I mean, you were going to college and working at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about how you sort of balance that. I was not very good at it, I guess. Work-life balance, I guess, is something that I've always kind of struggled with a little bit. It originally stemmed from like, I always need to have something to do. I always need to be busy. I always need to be productive. And that was kind of a very unhealthy way of thinking about it Mm because I was kind of motivated by that fear of not having money or opportunity. But the way that I balanced it was, thankfully, the company that I was working with at the time, they were actually pretty supportive of me going to college and doing what I needed to do. So there were, you know, some days where I had class during the middle of the day and They had no problem with me leaving the office to, I was working in the office five days a week for that job. Mm -hmm. You know, they had no problem with me like leaving work to go to class for like four hours and then do what I needed to do to get my degree at Bunker Hill. 
And so that was really helpful because it gave me a lot of autonomy. And really, as long as I got my work done, it really wasn't a big deal for them. So that was like a huge help. And I know a lot of people just don't have that sort of opportunity or luxury. That being said, they definitely did not subsidize, nor were they in a position to help me subsidize my education. Mm -hmm. But it definitely gave me, I think, the flexibility I needed. And then it was really up to me to just be very good about time management, make sure I was keeping up with my assignments, making sure like my work obligations were taken care of. Sometimes that required really long nights. Other times it required really early mornings. I wasn't as much of a social butterfly or I didn't really get to do like all of the social things that are part of a college experience that people, you know, might want or be accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really have like a dormitory experience. There were sacrifices in that, but I think ultimately like I came out better for it and I would definitely do it again if I had to. I just might be a little bit more forgiving with myself in terms of working myself too hard, I guess you mm. could say. Trust me, you miss nothing about the dorm experience. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing about that you have missed. I don't know if you have siblings or not, but like you've missed nothing. Consider yourself lucky. <laughs> yeah. It ended up working out, I think, a little bit because once I transferred to Leslie and finished my bachelor's degree there, although I didn't get the full college, you know, experience there either, I did end up, you know, slowly making friends throughout the entire college experience who who did have the dorm life. And, you know, we did go over each other's places and play video games and hang out and do homework together. And not all of them were from the same college, but, you mm-hmm. know, Boston is, there's a lots of college level institutions here. So yeah. I got to do some of that, but I guess you're right. I didn't really miss much either. So, I mean, I feel like Boston is a pretty like extremely diverse college town. I mean, of course you have the well-known colleges like the MIT, Harvard, et cetera. But then you've got, like you said, Leslie, you got Bunker Hill. There's other universities in and around the sort of Boston metro area. So it makes sense that there would be a lot of co-mingling like that. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta, in a way, is sort of like that, too. I mean, I went to Morehouse and I mean, there were opportunities where you would, of course, hang out with students from Georgia Tech, from Georgia State. Spelman is right across the street. Clark Atlanta is right across the street. So like it's all you're just all kind of co-mingling together. I mean, Atlanta's Atlanta really is a big college town. I don't know if a lot of folks realize that. It's a pretty unique college town because the number of HBCUs we have, but it's really right. a big college town. So you have all these opportunities to meet people doing all sorts of things at all sorts of different places. Yeah. I never really thought of ATL like that, to be honest. I think one person who I met was from the Savannah College of Art and Design, which I think is in Georgia. If I, yeah, if I yeah. It's, it's based out of Savannah, Georgia. We have mm-hmm. a campus here in Atlanta, too. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned this kind of before we started recording, but one of your professors at Leslie was actually a recent guest on Revision Path. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, shout out to Sinead Chapman. I think, um, (laughs) I mean, ever since like, you know, you reached out to me and I discovered the podcast, like I've definitely gone in and done my due diligence and like, I just think what you're doing is really cool again. And it's really kind of surreal, actually, I think to kind of be part of this in the same way that they were knowing that some of those people I either looked up to or I learned from or had some sort of like influence in my life like personally or professionally Mm -hmm. and we've also had some like other IBM designers on the podcast as well like I listened to 
a couple episodes way back with like Owen Hammonds oh, yeah. um, and Shawnee Sandy, who mm-hmm. are both like design executives at IBM still. Yeah, it's kind of a very small, interesting world, I guess, <laughs> as we were saying <laughs> earlier. But yeah, it was a really full circle moment. I haven't talked to Shanae in a little while, but recently we did kind of have like a bit of a, a go back and forth because she was interested in the talk that I had done earlier this year. But yeah, and I just think it's really cool. And it's it's honestly like kind of an honor to be doing this right now. Like I'm kind of <laughs> geeking. <laughs> I have a question about sort of, I just kind of want to go back to your college experience for a bit, because mm-hmm. like we said before, you were working and you were going to college at the same time. What made you want to continue your studies in design? Because it sounds like you already had, I mean, then, you know, if I'm wrong here, please correct me, but it sounds like you had a nice kind of setup because the company was very flexible about you going to class and still working for them. It sounded like they really supported you. Mm-hmm. What made you want to continue your educational career? Yeah. So that was a combination of quite a few things. I think like for context, the company that I worked at for six years, it was a small family owned business. We weren't like some large, like we weren't like a Vista print or anything like that. And although it was a really great experience, I think I hit my ceiling there in terms of growth and opportunity, like relatively Mm. quickly, probably in hindsight within like the first three years. But the reason I stayed was, you know, like you said, because of that flexibility that I really liked and also the pay was decent enough to get me through college, do the things that I needed to do, have a little fun on the side. It was good for what it was. Yeah. And then I think as I started to become more interested in things like interactive design and user experience and things like that, that I, I really didn't even know existed as career paths, really, I kind of stumbled upon them by virtue of learning how to code and like kind of self-teaching myself that stuff on the side while I was working there. I just basically hit a ceiling there. And then when COVID happened... I graduated Bunker Hill and the, in the fall of 2019. And I had applied to Leslie. I had like got my transfer papers. And, you know, thankfully they had a matriculation agreement, which made it really easy for me. They just take your associate's degree, no questions asked, that the credits all get applied where they should, and you start as a junior in their bachelor's program. Mm. And at the time, I was reluctant about doing it because it was going to require that I took out student loans. But I did get a really great scholarship, and the fact that they took all of my credits was really huge because it actually, when I did the math, you know, financially speaking, it actually made it lower cost for me to go there and do the program that I wanted than, say, to transfer and go to, like, a state school like Salem State or MassArt were probably the other alternatives that I had looked into. Mm. So even though the sticker price of Leslie was a lot higher, it was actually going to be net cheaper because of the scholarship that I got and... They took all of my credits, which some of the other colleges were may may not have been willing to do. That's great. Yeah. And so from there, that kind of made the decision really easy for me. And then when COVID happened, you know, and the world blew up in the spring of 2020, I actually decided to take a gap for like a semester and then start in the fall of 2020. Of course, you know, when I had planned to do that, I didn't know COVID was going to blow up the entire world. But thus it did. And so in some ways, I actually kind of avoided that initial shock to my education experience because like everywhere else in the world, like everyone was trying to figure out, you know, how to do virtual class instruction if they've never done it before. There was a whole bunch of new challenges that happened as a result of that. And so I kind of skid by those for the most part. And then when I started in fall of 2020, I was still working at the print shop, 
But because I was working at the print shop remotely now, because it it just wasn't safe for us to be in the office still, mm-hmm. I was able to do Leslie full-time and work remotely for the print shop. Okay. And then in 2021, in January, because my hours and income from the print shop was drastically reduced just because business was slow um, and it was a really tough time for everyone. And so, you know, thankfully I had prepared for some of this because, you know, going back to financial literacy stuff, like I had prepared an emergency fund and, and kind of knew Worst case scenario, I would be able to make it through college for the most part, even if I wasn't working a full-time gig and I could just find maybe some freelance work and stuff on the side. So in 2021, I decided to leave. I put in my notice. I left on really great terms with them overall. Actually, recently, I ended up asking them to do some print work for me for a, a side thing with IBM. But yeah, from there, it was just like full steam ahead with Leslie. I was like, I just want to get my education done out of the way. I know interactive design is the area that I'm interested in. I know it will somehow like bring me to some interesting path with coding in some way. And at the time, I didn't really know what user experience was until a particular studio course that I had, which just so happened to be with two IBM distinguished designers who were my faculty. And they were the ones who ended up asking me to apply like a year later when I was a senior into the pro- the role that I'm in now, essentially. Oh, nice. I was going to ask like how you sort of came across IBM, like, you know, with the work that you were doing, but it sounds like you already had this, this kind of support system in play. Yeah, yeah. I think it really started kind of like way back in vocational school, because I had a pretty good technical understanding of the tooling and the software and some of the processes for like design, in terms of the tactical aspects and like visual design, working in design, you know, all that stuff. And so for me, the the real value that I got out of college was like the networking, the mentorship, the one-on-one time, and a lot of the theory and history behind design was most valuable to me. So I could really focus on that rather than trying to like struggle with some of the tooling and learning new methods that I was already familiar with. And so when it came time to really work on projects, the technical aspects of doing the design work and making the artifacts and deliverables was actually relatively easy for me. What I was most challenged by was like the strategic parts of it and kind of training myself to think like a designer, not just make pretty designs. Mm, I hear you. Okay. And now let's talk about what you sort of mentioned before about teaching at Bunker Hill. I feel like that might be an interesting experience to go back to your alma mater years later and now (laughs) teach. What made you decide to go that route? It's definitely been a full circle moment that I'm still kind of I guess, pinching myself for a long time ago. So when I had graduated from Bunker Hill in 2019, a professor of mine who I developed like a really great relationship with while I was there for four years, she asked me when I graduated, she said, you know, when you finish your bachelor's degree, I would love for you to come back and teach the college. And when she said that to me, I was kind of like, what? (laughs) Because I was like, I had, you know, I just never really considered that as a possibility before. And then ever since she said that, I have kind of noticed getting really positive signals from people that I might be good at doing that. Mm -hmm. And so over time, like, I guess it it was kind of like a a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way where if I found it interesting and and I thought it was nice, maybe it would happen. (laughs) I maintained a relationship with that professor for, for quite a while. And even while I was going through Leslie and doing things like I would always go back to the college and even before I got the role there, like do like design crits with some of their students and provide like networking and opportunities and portfolio reviews, things like that to kind of give 
back. And earlier this year, I'd went to a, a design conference. It was like the first in-person design conference I got to go to since like COVID, you know, kind of unleashed everything. Mm-hmm. She had just so happened to be there, the professor who ended up asking me to teach. And we were just kind of like catching up, you know, a little bit because we hadn't talked in a little while, but we email back and forth every once in a while. And she had told me like, hey, we have adjunct positions opening. We're looking for people to teach certain courses. Like, I want you to apply, basically. And even still, you know, I was kind of like, well, I'm still like, you know, just barely my first year into this role at IBM. Am I really even qualified or like ready to Mm -hmm. do this? I was hoping, I think, realistically to get like another maybe four years or five years or so in the industry and and doing more practice as a practitioner. But I kind of just kind of said to myself, self, take your own advice. Like if the opportunity presents itself, just apply and see what happens, just like I did with IBM. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, it was like the worst that they can say is no, right? right? So. I applied, I did the interview, I did the teaching demo, and then, yeah, now here I am. So I'm only teaching one class. It's Wednesday evenings, which works really well with my schedule, considering I also tend to go into the office on Wednesdays. And it's right down the street from my office pretty much, too. So, And the topic that I'm teaching is interactive design, which is kind of right up my alley, since that's what I studied in college, and now that's what I'm doing for my job, pretty much. So it kind of just, you know, the stars aligned, I guess you could say. How's the teaching experience been so far? So far, it's been, I think, a net positive. I think the teaching aspects of it, working with students, kind of like digging back in some of my own archives and coming up with my own content and assignments. I also spent a lot of time reaching out to some of my own professors and also students that I went to Bunker Hill with and at Leslie as well, and kind of doing like my own design research. I kind of just approached it as like, Well, if I was to design a student experience, I just kind of treated it like any other experience design project, except my users are now students. So approaching it with that mindset kind of really helped me. And from there, I think the parts of it that I like are really going well as far as in-class instruction, working with the students, providing feedback on their work, I think is probably one of the most valuable things I got out of my design education is like getting critiques and feedback from other people. Mm-hmm. And getting that other perspective on your work that you might not otherwise get if you're trying to learn by yourself. And then the parts of it that I don't like so much really are kind of like the more logistics and administrative stuff around it. I really struggled with grading in the first two weeks to kind of figure out like, I probably need a rubric. And then also the learning management system that we use isn't the most user-friendly thing mm-hmm. either, which is kind of meta hilarious in the sense because I'm trying to teach my students how to design interactive systems like that. You know, there are parts of it that are, you know, bad that come with the good, but I'd say overall it's been going well. And despite currently maybe potentially having to fill one student if they don't show up next week, it's been going overwhelmingly good, I think. But ideally, I would like to make it to the end of semester without failing anyone. I definitely did not set out to do that when mm-hmm. I started teaching. So it's kind of unfortunate that they're just not participating or engaging. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to make any assumptions as to why they're not doing it or assuming that they're a delinquent of some kind because they may have things going on as a student that I just don't know about and probably never will. But I did like try to make an effort to reach out to that person and and be as supportive as possible as opposed to being punitive and penalizing despite, you know, having to withhold, like uphold the rules of my syllabus in the classroom and things like that. Yeah. 
I was an adjunct for two years, I think. I taught for two years. This is 2012 through 2014, I think. I taught a web development course to business majors. Mm. And <laughs> it was like it was a BIS course, like business information systems. And I get that struggle that you're talking about. Like you go into it. Well, for me, I think the the Virgo in me wanted to be like, hey, this is all wrong. Like the way that you're teaching, like I remember going to the dean like the first week saying, we are setting these <laughs> students up to fail if this is what we're teaching them, because this is not what we use out mm-hmm. in the real world. Like if this is what you're teaching business students, they're going to go to a company and get laughed at or they're going to try to apply for a job and no one's going to hire them. And like I offered mm-hmm. to redo the whole rubric. I'm talking about the grading the tests, the lessons. I was like, I'll redo it and make this into my course that I think Mm -hmm. they should have. And they were like, okay, it's fine. We don't care. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And like, uh, also in that same vein, like, yeah, you go into it not wanting to fail anyone and Mm -hmm. it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's one of those sad eventualities. And it's because, oh, how can I put this? And I don't mean this in a derisive way, but like students will always try to get one over on their professor. They always <laughs> will. It doesn't matter how old they are or anything. They right. will always try to get one over on their professor. They will give you all kinds of excuses just out of mm-hmm. everywhere as to why something did get done, why something didn't get done. In this case, like the syllabus is your friend. Like the syllabus is the contract between the right. professor and the student to say, if you're in this class, these are the things that you have to do in order to succeed in the class. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we had office hours, students would come to office hours and would wonder why. And like, it's not that office hours were included in their grade, but then they would, you know, come at the last minute like, oh, well, can we meet on this day? I'm like, well, that's not my office hours. My <laughs> office hours are on the syllabus, you know, because I'm also yeah. a working designer. So I can't right. just go out of my, you know, you want to help the students because you're, you're their teacher. So I get yeah. that. But it's going to be an inevitability that like you're going to have to fail someone. Students are going to go cry bloody murder to the <laughs> dean or to whatever because you're not fair. You're a bad teacher. They're going to leave bad reviews. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. The best thing that you can do is to follow your syllabus. Teach the students that that are receptive because there's mm-hmm. just going to be some people you're just not going to reach because I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you're doing this in person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's just going to be people that you're just not going to reach. I think ours was a mix of in-person and online. And mm-hmm. the online students were the worst. I mean, <laughs> copying straight from Wikipedia. I'd run it through turning in and get 99% plagiarized. I'm just like, oh, my God. And they would oh swear my. to you up and down that they wrote it. And it's like, I can look at the quality of your written posts in the forum and tell that you didn't write this. Like, <laughs> yeah, don't lie to yeah. me, you know, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things, unfortunately, that's just going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that, because one of the things that I that I had done that I had conversations with some people about when I was developing all the content, because the college basically kind of they didn't really direct me on. Basically, it was like, here's the course description. Here's a sample of the syllabus that's been used previously. Mm-hmm. Make it your own. So I had a lot of academic freedom, I guess, in that sense of being able to develop the materials the way I wanted to do it. Because like you were kind of saying, when I took this very same course when I was a student, it was not very good. One of them, one of the courses I actually took 
ended up being so bad that I actually went to the dean as a student, complained about the course, got a refund, and then still got the credits for the course. Wow. Um, But I was also a fairly advanced student because I had already had prior experience. I had already kind of known, you know, some of the things that were out there that were happening. I also spent a lot of time investing in my learning and education outside of the classroom. So I was very aware of, of where like the college was doing well and not doing so well at the time. And so now coming back into it, I kind of had the same mindset of like, there is no way I'm doing it this way. I'm going to do it my way, which, you know, ultimately creates a lot of work for me in terms of having to come up with all the content and things like that. But it's also just been kind of like an interesting way to think about my design skills in a different light in terms of designing for instruction and learning as opposed to making profit off of people, I guess. Yeah. So that's been kind of interesting. And then on the topic of plagiarism, one of the areas that I talk to people about is like using generative AI. Mm. Um, I kind of went into it with a mindset of like, I would rather students use it and use it liberally and experiment with it and not be afraid of it, but come to me with questions because I think ultimately, if I was to put in my syllabus, there's no use of generative AI allowed. One, it's really hard to detect whether someone's using it or not, unless, you know, to your point, you've kind of gotten to know them a few weeks in, you're kind of like, you can kind of see where people are at and Mm -hmm. kind of what they're capable of to a certain extent, right? But for me, it was was kind of just like, I know, and I told them on the first day, I was like, when we were going over key parts of the syllabus, I was like, I know that, that you are going to use generative AI, probably whether I allow you to or not. So... Just use it, but be conscious of how you're using it. Cite your usage of it when you do mm-hmm. and provide documentation to me so that I can see how you're using it. Because there may be parts like kind of we were talking about where it could be harmful or misleading, or maybe it's not giving them the right information that they need and things like that. So that's been kind of an interesting thing to also navigate. There are a few students who I suspect of using generative AI without disclosing, disclosing it according to the rules of our syllabus. Mm-hmm. But for now, I'm kind of letting it slide mostly because I just haven't gotten that sense of familiarity with where they're at and being able to tell one way or another. And I also have seen the negative effects of accusing students of plagiarizing their work or or doing something that they are capable of that you just don't believe. And that can leave a really lasting and poor impression on students. Because I remember experiencing that once a little bit where... Because I was working at the printing company, I had access to all kinds of printing equipment, tools, materials, and quality paper, quality design. I also did a lot of pre-press, and so I knew what it took to design something and actually have it be printed in a way that is, you know, high quality. And for one of my first projects, I, I did that. I tried to pull out all the stops, like my work let me use what was available. And when I brought in my project, I remember... They didn't believe the work that I did was really mine and that I actually, you know, bound the book, printed the book, designed it and did all of that. And although it wasn't, you know, as relevant to like the conversation on generative AI, I remember that, you know, I still remember that to this day and feeling like, well, if I'm in a student in the scenario who's really excelling at their projects and doing to the point where you don't even believe the work is mine, then why am I here? Right. You know what I mean? So. I try to be very, very careful about who I accuse or not of using it. And I think ultimately, at the end, if they're going to use generative AI to essentially cheat their way through my course, they're not going to get the return on the educational investment that they're putting in. So I think ultimately, it all 
ends up in my favor anyway. But the impact, the initial impact of that may work in their favor in the short term. I'm glad I didn't teach in the in the age of AI. <laughs> I'm so glad because <laughs> I can only imagine now that it's and I mean, that was sort of a thing that came up a lot as sort of a, a stopping point for educators. Like I think maybe about a year or so ago when chat GPT right. really started to become used more commonly was, you know, in educational mm-hmm. spaces, you know, professors really being like prohibiting it, of course, but then also curious about it because the work is sometimes actually kind of good and yeah it's like if a student is going to mortgage their future away by using generative ai why are you in school like why are you even doing it i mean i taught business students so these weren't even design students so maybe i came Mm -hmm. into it with a little bit of of a bias because they really were just like look this is an elective i just need to take this (laughs) so i can get my you know business degree and go get my mba or whatever they didn't really care about design and not to say that i wanted to make them care about design but I also didn't want them to think this was going to just be a cakewalk for them. Right. Not to right. say I made it hard on, well, I might've made it a little hard on purpose. <laughs> I would kind of change the course as, you know, things went along because like I said, you know, I came in and I really wanted to change things up. I would edit it from like semester to semester. I would change mm-hmm. some things up. And I remember this one student who I failed three times, not on purpose. I didn't fail them on purpose, wow. is what I'm trying to say, but they failed the course three times. And it was because... <laughs> I would change the course slightly, like change certain things, and they would keep Mm. using the same homework and materials from the first time that they failed the course. (sighs) Like, I would change the the nature of the assignment, and they would just turn in the same thing. I'm like, did you not read what the assignment was? (laughs) Why would you turn in something that's completely different? Just as students. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I hope a year or two from now, when I've hopefully taught this, you know, class again more in the future, that I don't have students like that because I am a very patient and lenient person. And, you know, I often see the big picture of these things, I think, more than my students do. But I really hope I don't get to that point because that's when it'll really start. Like, the shade will start coming out and they're like, are you for real, for real? Like, you're just going to submit the whole same thing. I really hope I don't get to that point. I don't think you'll get to that point. Again, like you're teaching design students, so they want to be there for that for the most part. You know, I think you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah, it is a requirement. And one of the things that I did on our first day was do like a little intro survey to kind of understand where they're at in terms of their interest in the topic of the course, but also how many hours they're working outside of the college versus how many credits they're taking mostly to make sure I'm saving students from the mistakes that I made when I started college because I had no idea what I was doing. But it's also just good contextually for me to know a little bit about each individual student because that may be one reason or another why they aren't participating as much or miss a few deadlines here and there and things like that. So it's good for me to have that kind of in mind here and there. Nice. Now, along with teaching, along with your work at IBM, You not only stream on Twitch, which I really want to get into, but you have a podcast also. What made you decide to kind of branch out into these other forms of media? The way that I describe it to people is I just like making shit and putting it on the Internet. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but. Oh, you're you're, um, you're fine. You can curse. It's fine. So that's really kind of the mindset that I I guess I kind of approached it with is just I just want to make stuff and put it out there. And so. Well, I guess I'll start with, I don't know, which should I start with streaming or the podcast? Which one do you want? Uh, Let's talk about streaming first. Okay. 
So for streaming, the way that it kind of happened is during the pandemic, like at the height of lockdown and quarantines and things like that, we were all stuck inside for the most part. And originally, I had started as a viewer on Twitch, like most people do. And I would primarily watch people play video games. And they were mostly within the the queer community. I am a gay man for context. I don't know if I talked about that yet, but yeah, I'm queer as fuck. And uh, (laughs) I just started watching like queer streamers on Twitch who play games and I started playing with them. And then I forget what it was that really kind of crossed me over in terms of the boundary of going from Twitch to entertainment, but now as a way to learn more about web development and design. Mm-hmm. Because there are a few of us that stream about design on Twitch, myself included. And then there's also quite a few and quite a bit more people who stream web development and software engineering within the software and game development category, which is typically where I stream as well. And probably like a year into being a viewer, that's when I started to think about, well, I'm stuck at home. I'm doing some freelancing consulting work here and there. I'm doing my own thing. Let me just start like a co-working stream and see what happens and just share my work. And then because I had been so embedded in in the Twitch community and the streamers that I had watched, some of which who are still very much my good duties, as I like to say to this day, Mm -hmm. even outside of, of streaming, one of them actually coincidentally ended up living down the street from me during parts of the COVID quarantine, which is also hilariously coincidental. But those people from the queer gaming community really gave me like the viewership that I needed and that initial push of support to become an, a Twitch affiliate. So that's basically at the point where you can monetize your stream a little bit. You can have subscribers, you mm. know, make emotes and do things like that. That happened within the first two weeks of me streaming and, and everyone was just so extremely supportive despite having little to no idea what my content was or what I was actually streaming (laughs) because I was streaming my design work and some of my process. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, probably now I'm a little bit more removed from that kind of like queer gaming part, but I still do participate in some of the communities and lurk and, and some streams here that I like to support here and there. But then I started to really find more of the software and game development community and all of the streamers and, And now some of them are also, yeah, like my friends. I met some of them at TwitchCon last year for the first time, which was really great. And actually this year, later this month or in October, I'm going to TwitchCon again. And we're actually going to do a panel about programming on Twitch. Hmm. And so I don't have like a significantly huge like viewership around my stream or anything like that. But the people who do come and who hang out and who stay whether it's, you know, other streamers or viewers that I've had for like, you know, years now, some of them have been subscribed to me for over like three years. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is crazy. Like, thank you so much for your support. And some of those people still to this day have no idea what I do, but they just support me and and who I am and, and what I like to share and put out there. And so it's been a really interesting and like net positive way of putting myself out there, kind of like how you're talking about in terms of building like my personal brand, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, taken on i guess it's its own thing i guess i definitely don't do it as much as i used to just because now that i work full time and i'm doing my own course it's it's really hard for me to stream on a regular basis as much as i used to and so you know as a result my viewership and like other metrics have kind of gone down since the kind of height of my you know streaming career if you want to call it that but 
I still do it for funsies, and I always did it for fun, and I never really cared about the metrics anyway, because all I really just wanted to do was just make stuff and put it on the internet. And mm. so streaming was just happened to be the lowest barrier to entry, coincidentally enough, for me to do that, because when you're live, you're live. It's not like a recording like this where maybe we could potentially edit out some things or, you know, or something like that. It's like, for me, it's like what you see is what you get. And also at the same token, I don't have to worry about editing. I don't have to worry about, you know, <laughs> scripting or being like a perfectionist on it, which kind of can take away the fun because sometimes I do have that nature about my work. And so for me, it's just, it's a fun way to put myself out there to share what I know. And also it's part of the reason why I think I've become a bit of a better like public speaker, why I'm more willing to engage with like public speaking opportunities, do things like this. And also people have learned things from my stream, which kind of goes back to the whole, you might be a good teacher someday. And so people on my stream have literally told me like, oh, I've learned so much from you or thank you so much for your feedback on my work or, or something like that. And it's just become a really positive outlet, I think, for me whenever I get to do it, just not as frequently as I used to. Is there like a big web development community on Twitch? I mean, you, like you said before, there's obviously gamers and such, but mm-hmm. it sounds like there there might be a pretty big community there for web development. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. We're relatively unknown, I would say, in terms of the grand scheme of Twitch. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who have an upwards of like, you know, an average of 200 viewers. And there are some people who have upwards of like, you know, 1500 viewers when they're live. Wow. And they could be doing anything from like coding in Rust or or building a silly like website with like animations and things like that. One of my really good friends, Mewtrue, I think she's like the perfect example of how you can be a streamer and a content creator and have fun and just like, she's just really awesome. And I met her through streaming and we've kind of become good friends since then. And we've always been supportive of one another, despite not really even knowing or meeting each other up until TwitchCon last year. And so, yeah, it's it's just interactions like that with people, whether they're fellow streamers or or viewers, it creates a community around what we're doing. And even though I'm a designer, mostly by trade, I still kind of, you know, I guess holds my own in terms of programming and web development. Mm -hmm. And my stream is kind of unique in the sense is where I add a design lens to things from that. Again, how are you talking about the design engineering and hybrid perspective that I think a lot of people in the category may not have, except for like a very small handful of us. Twitch sounds like one of the, the rare places online now, like in 2023 one of the rare places where you can really like carve out a niche for yourself. I mean, cause you know, with things like Instagram and Twitter and things like that, a lot of stuff is very algorithmically driven and it Mm -hmm. feels like, at least from what you're telling me, Twitch is really more community based in that way. Yeah. I mean, that's actually perfect. Cause that was going to be like my next, you know, soapbox to get on when it comes to creating content on Twitch is, The way that I kind of, that I frame it to people is Twitch is kind of unique as its own, you know, brand of social media, like you were kind of thinking about earlier, because it has kind of its own unique culture, to be quite honest, around it with like emotes and chat and how people interact with the streamer while they're live. Mm -hmm. There's also the kind of aspects like you were talking about around community where people who are creating content on TikTok and YouTube and podcasts and even blog articles, any form of like media that you put out there, 
a lot of it is a one-way interaction. And a lot of people do it with the goal of building an audience that then they can later monetize. But with streaming on Twitch specifically, what I found is that what you're really doing is building a community because discovery and algorithms and search on Twitch kind of suck, to be quite honest. Oh. That's why a lot of people don't really know there's a whole community of us out there. But for the ones that do know and for the ones that discover us, they tend to stick around and they tend to support what we do, even if they may not like all of the content that we stream. When I first started streaming, you know, one day out of the week on Sundays, I would just stream League of Legends, which is a game that I like to play for fun with some of my friends. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with the content that I streamed two days a week during the day when I was co-working and things like that. But for the people who wanted that, they came and they stuck around. And then when I was streaming other stuff, sometimes they would still come and hang out anyway. And so it really builds on that two-way interaction that I think a lot of people don't get from other social media platforms that Twitch is really good at enabling. And in hindsight, it also kind of really aligns with, I guess, desire, you could say, to, to have like a two-way interaction with people and not feel like it's just a transaction of like, you know, like this post or subscribe to my newsletter and like things like that. It really is a two-way interaction. And I've created some really great friends out of it, some of which have helped me with the course that I'm doing right now, mm -hmm. some of which I've helped with their content and vice versa. And it, it's really created a nice little community around like what I do, even if, you know, my particular stream and viewership isn't as strong as it used to be, I guess. Interesting. There was a time when I was thinking of doing like a live show via Twitch for Revision Path. Mm -hmm. Like I was thinking of doing like Revision Path live like one day a week. This was before the pandemic if we manage to get the resources to be able to do it i would love to try to branch into doing something like that because like you mentioned it's a totally different sort of dimension in terms of reaching people and then also in terms of communicating like this conversation mm -hmm. that you and i are having will be edited if it was live it could be a totally different thing in terms of where the conversation goes and what we talk about or anything like that so I'm, right. I'm thinking about it. I've really been putting a little bit of thought into it. If we are able to, I'm kind of working on some things behind the scenes just in terms of like securing funding for the show and stuff. So mm -hmm. I would love to do like a live thing, maybe like once a week or something mm -hmm. as, as sort of a, a supplement to the podcast because the podcast has been such a, a constant thing over the past 10 years. And we've mm -hmm. had like, blog articles here and there we did a literary anthology for a couple of years and i would love to sort of add a different sort of component to revision yeah. path but yeah twi yeah, twitch sounds like it could be it that's great i mean and honestly it may not even have to be twitch it could be another live platform i mean obviously if you want help with that you know definitely feel free to reach out to me i could probably help you in some way or another okay um one of the things that, you know, just in hindsight that I, I caution people about is there are some people who, you know, maybe come from other platforms and they're, they're trying to diversify their, you know, their viewership, their audience and, you know, things like that. And one of the mistakes that I've seen and that people make what they tend to do, especially if they come from YouTube, is they still treat Twitch like an audience and not a two-way interaction. Mm. And so what you get is people streaming their content and talking into the void, but they're not interacting with chat. They're not engaging with the people that are there. And that's where I think a lot of people tend to like maybe fail, I guess you could say, or or not get the results or outcomes that they want out of streaming. 
And mostly it stems from, I feel, from my very limited anecdotal evidence and observations that the reason is because a lot of them just aren't used to that mindset shift. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, it just kind of happened naturally because I started my content creator journey on Twitch. And so now when people come from other platforms, it may not, I mean, people in general tend not to convert between one platform for another. So if you have a really strong audience in one type of media or platform, like the podcast, for example, it's going to be really hard to get people to move over to something else. Mm. And that's, you know, universally, regardless of which type of social media or interaction you have with your audience, but it is challenging and it's especially challenging for people to go into live streaming on Twitch for that reason, I believe, too. No, that's that's good to know. I mean, like I said, if I did it, it would be a supplement to the mm-hmm. show. So, and also, honestly, for scheduling, it would be so much easier. I think <laughs> it would be so much easier. But in the future, we'll see. But you know, since we're talking about podcasts, uh, you also have a podcast, as you said, you started kind of during the pandemic. Yeah. So that that kind of ended up just starting as kind of like an inside joke between me and a really close friend of mine, Kevin, who's my co-host on our podcast, Gay, Geeky, and Tired, hashtag ad. <laughs> and we started it, you know, during the height of the pandemic amongst all the other content creation things I was doing for fun. A lot of times the way I would socialize with my friends during the pandemic was through Discord. And with my friend Kevin in particular, we would have a group of us, some of us, I met my friend Kevin while I was in college, which was part of my, you know, ancillary college experience. And so a lot of our friends would just joke with me and him about how like, we should make our own podcast and how like we talk about so many things around like current events and pop culture and and queer culture and society and things like that. And so particularly music and gaming is are like two like kind of key areas that we tend to talk about a lot. And, you know, at one point, I think we were kind of just like, should we do it? Should we do this? Is this for real? Like, should we really make a podcast? And then, you know, long story short, we did. We ended up releasing the first episode, I think, on my birthday in June of 2021, mm-hmm. it started as gay graphic and tired because initially, well, we're kind of both in the design trade, but he more approaches it from like an architecture perspective where I'm more user experience. And so we thought that would be a cute title and then we ended up changing it to what it is now. But we talk about all kinds of stuff that I just explained it to people is like, we just talk about gay shit. We do it very casually. It's very like unscripted unfiltered. We come prepared with some topics. We tend to rant a lot. It's a little all over the place (laughs) and you probably won't like it. But for the people that do, and some of them have come from my Twitch audience as well, they listen to it whenever we release an episode. Because it is something we do for fun and something we don't really monetize, we have, you know, had some spurts of lack of consistently or consistency around posting, especially recently now because of my adjunct role and and the kind of demands that are both of our jobs now require of us. But we are, you know, looking into getting back into it. And for the most part, we've been putting out episodes pretty consistently now for since then. So we don't really have like a posting schedule or anything like at the at the scale that you're doing with like the revision path. But again, it just kind of started as one of those things that we wanted to do for fun. And we still do it for fun and probably will until we don't want to anymore. <laughs> and that's, that's just what it is. Now, have you found that that sort of helped you out in the in a similar way that Twitch streaming has in terms of communication? 
I think so. I would say Twitch definitely more so because there is kind of like you're talking about that multi-sensory like experience of like you're visually there talking to people and then you're they can obviously hear you because it's a video format. I would say with a podcast because we have the luxury of being able to edit it and because they can't see us. There's aspects of it that, you know, outside of the technical parts of learning what it takes to produce a podcast a little bit and some tips and tricks here to like edit audio and understanding what that process looks like. I'm not like an audio engineer or anything, and I'm sure your editor could probably do way better than I can at editing our (laughs) pod. But it's just one of those like little technical skills that I've always just been able to pick up really quickly just to do something and get it out there. And nobody really complains about our audio, so I think it's okay. And, you know, outside of that, it's it's really just, I would say I've definitely gotten more personal growth and value out of streaming. But for the podcast thing, I think it's also just, half of it is just an excuse for me and my friend to get together on Discord and just talk a bunch of crap, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it has had value, but in less, I guess, tangible monetary ways. Yeah, it's more like it's a personal thing. It's cathartic. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. What does success look like to you at this point in your career? When I was listening to some of the episodes with some other people, I figured this one was coming. And of course, I did not prepare a very well-worded response. (laughs) I think success is a really tricky word. And the way that I tend to think about it and the way that I frame it to people is that success is different for everyone. And for me, it's not necessarily tied to like a monetary amount of money or becoming a millionaire or doing anything like that. I think ultimately my idea of success is being able to have a positive impact on the world and the people around me, whether that's in small ways or big ways, you know, whether I become some notable designer lord someday or something, I don't know, I don't care. But just being able to have a positive impact with people, preferably through my profession and personally, And being able to do that sustainably, I think. So although money is not like a motivating factor for me, it is just a reality of the world that we live in. And there are certain ways, like when it comes to the lifestyle that I want and the flexibility that I want and the security and things like that to where money does play a role in it, but it's not necessarily my sole motivator. I guess like kind of going back to the key takeaway that we were talking about, it's really lifting as I climb. I think it's just been something that, especially ever since I got my job at IBM, it's something that I take maybe a little too seriously because I recognize that there's an immense amount, you know, for someone like me who is a queer Black person who may not have had the most affluent upbringing, but somehow, you know, managed to have this beautiful story of overcoming adversity and all that stuff. There are elements that I still recognize are due to like elements of privilege in some way because it's on a spectrum. And so there are privileges that I've had. There are opportunities that I've had because of that. But there are also ways that I may have been disenfranchised or like oppressed, whether internalized myself or externally. And so lifting as I climb is is kind of a way that I, I like to give back and uplift people in ways that I can where I have the power and privilege to do so. So like one of the ways that I try to do that is like right before coming on the podcast, someone who I'd went to college with at Bunker Hill actually reached out to me and said like, hey, I saw you posted about consulting opportunities at IBM. I want to learn more about your role and what you do and how to apply and, you know, things like that. And although I'm not in a position to like hire them outright, I can at least meet with them, give them feedback on their portfolio, give them some advice, insight into what it's like and and really just 
you know, mentoring people and that brings me joy. That brings me satisfaction. You know, I feel like I'm helping people. I think that's why I also like teaching so much. It's a way to just be successful, but also make others successful with me as I go, I guess. Does that make sense? If it makes sense to you, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. I'm not, I'm not messing with you. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't get into UX, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, boy. To be honest, if it had started the other way around, I probably would have been a web developer is probably the closest, like the alternative, I guess. And then maybe my roads would have crossed elsewhere into UX design later on. A probably like out of the wild answer would be maybe working somewhere in like a nonprofit or in healthcare or in the public market somewhere like either, again, teaching, maybe not teaching design, but teaching in some form or fashion. Design and it's just something that's been with me that I've known I've wanted to do in some fashion or another ever since my vocational training in like ninth grade. And that kind of like hyper fixation and just knowing what I want to do that early has really like propelled me to like go really far, at least relatively to people like in my age group, I guess you could say. So I'd never really considered alternatives outside of like maybe becoming a web developer and leaving design or potentially becoming a teacher. But all of those things still include design, I guess, in some way, now that I'm doing both of those things. So where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? In the next five years, I think, so one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, aside from like my craft and that intersection of design and engineering is just putting my design skills and knowledge to work in places where I feel like it aligns with my values. And so I'm trying to move towards like, at least within the, you know, short term in some way, moving towards doing more consulting projects and gigs with public sector institutions. So education institutions, colleges, local and state governments, healthcare providers, things like that. And I want to do that because it's close as I can get to, I guess, public service while still very much maintaining what I do as a designer and being able to bring value there in terms of inclusive design where I can and intersectionality and and a lot of those things like socially that some people don't always get the opportunity to bring to their work or maybe just aren't to because they don't represent or have you know the identities that intersect in the way for the people that they're designing for I guess so I, I guess like it would be being a design consultant in some shape or form working with local and state governments, educational institutions, or healthcare. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, your work, your streaming, your podcast? Like, where can they find that information online? I've basically compiled, if you want to know where I am on the internet, basically just go to com slash links. It's kind of like my own I'm a web developer, so I'm going to make it myself version of Linktree, essentially. And that just lists all of my links to places where I show up online, including my blog, my stream, my podcast. My portfolio is also there on my website, if it's even vaguely up to date. <laughs> yeah, I would say maniacomi.com slash links will take you to anywhere I am on the internet that you may also be. 
Sounds good. Well, Manny Icomi, I want to thank you so, so much for, for coming on the show. I think one for talking about your story, talking about, you know, just sort of what you're working on and even what you're teaching and everything. I feel like you're kind of at this point in your career where it's all going to start to come together for you. Like in the next few years, I feel like it's all going to gel. I'm listening to what you're doing now and that, I mean, it sounds like kind of what I was doing like back in the day, like I was trying to do all these different things and creating stuff and putting it online. I feel like you're at that point where it's really going to start to come together and gel in like a really positive way. And I'll be really excited to see uh, what you come up with when that happens. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was fantastic. I'm just so obsessed with what you're doing. I think this is great. And you know, maybe hopefully one day I'll have the kind of impact that you're having right now on the community. I think it's really, really cool what you're doing. So thank you so much for having me. This is really an honor to be here. Big, big thanks to Manny Icomi. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Manny and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is supported by the School of Visual Arts, BFA Design, and BFA Advertising programs. SVA values originality and critical thinking while providing students an immersive learning experience with their faculty of industry experts. The BFA Design program empowers students with the tools and opportunities to shape the future of design. And the BFA Advertising program equips students with the skills in media and new tech needed to excel in the advertising industry. Learn more at sva.edu and enroll today to join one of the most influential artistic communities in the world. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing Black designers and creatives from all over the world. But in order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram. We're also on Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. You could follow us on Spotify, on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.